Amen. You can grab a seat. Glad you're with us this morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here. And we're going to be in the book of Acts today. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way to Acts chapter 17. Uh, If not, please don't panic. We'll have it on the screens for you. If you look at the screen now, our graphic for this series is Turning the World Upside Down, the book of Acts. And we brought out a couple of different times how odd it maybe is to consider what Christianity was with all of its radicalism, nonviolent, but radicalism, the way in which it impacted a culture that in some ways didn't seem like it could handle it, wasn't ready for it, tried to squish it, and eventually just succumbed to it as the Roman Empire became a Christian empire, to whatever degree that actually happened. We think about how um, impactful an individual's lives, but then even in social structures, the gospel was. And then we think about our life in Christianity today. Is your experience with Christianity one of radical transformation or are you kind of like most people and you just wonder if people really can change we got that little book how people change it's based on the idea that the bible really does teach what we should be and ways to get there It teaches us something about transformation. I think most of us are probably pretty jaded about whether or not that's even possible. Because you look at your own life. And you think about goals that you've had. Maybe on like the important side of silly. Like weight loss. That's important, kind of. Maybe if you get too far in one direction, then it becomes like really important. But for most of us, nobody cares what you look like but you. Yeah, it would be good to lose a little bit of weight. And yet, every time you've tried it, transformation, real lasting change doesn't really happen. Maybe it's on the more important side of things. It's your temper. Yeah, you keep telling yourself that that's going to change. You're not going to keep screaming at your children. But it doesn't. Maybe it comes to practices in the way that you work that you know are are shortcuts or maybe even immoral relationships that you have and you know they've they've gotten outside of what's really appropriate and you wanted to change and you've tried to change but change hasn't really happened and so you're a little bit jaded about whether or not it's possible for people to change I think most of us are probably somewhat jaded about whether or not it's possible for cultures to change. And the the picture that we're going to paint of what was happening as the Bible, uh, I'm sorry, as the gospel makes its way out into the world in this Roman Empire time is one of not just individuals changing, but whole social structures turned upside down, turning the world upside down. Are you expecting to be part of that kind of a situation, that kind of a transformation, even at the culture level? 
based on what's happening here, are you a little jaded that such a thing's even possible? What I want us to do today is as we read through this, this second missionary journey of Paul as he's, he went out and he started all these different churches and all these different places, he goes back to Antioch. And then he goes out again to see some of these churches, but also to go to new places to preach Christ where he's not been known. And the, the impact that he begins to have, the message that he preaches that we now know historically, looking back on it, even after the time of the writing of the New Testament, which is, you know, first century, then you get into the 200s and the 300s and the 400s. Historically, that gospel movement that starts in that first century blows up. And the Roman Empire becomes the Holy Roman Empire at some point. How did that transformation take place? Is that transformation what we are engaging in in Christianity? You have to ask that question. If you are inside the house of faith and you consider yourself a Christian, is that kind of transformation taking place in your life? And if you're on the outside looking in, you're just investigating Christianity. You've done us the incredible honor of being our guest today and letting us host you and actually get to know you and hopefully bring you into our our um, community, whether or not until you believe, belonging before you believe. If you're outside of the faith, you have to ask that question. How did that kind of change happen? And is there something missing with the way that you see Christianity today? In Acts chapter 17, as these guys go back out and they start to preach the gospel in all these different towns, they start in the synagogues. There's a perfect continuity between the Old Testament and the New. Jesus came to fulfill, not abolish. There's a perfect continuity. And as Paul would go into these new towns, he would start with the Jewish community and he would say, guys, you know, you know, you know what God has always said was coming. Well, it happened in Jesus. And there'd be people that would believe and there'd be people that would get jealous and get really angry and then they would start this persecution against Paul and the people that he brought with them in the Jewish community in these new towns. And so then they'd have to go out and speak the gospel to the Gentiles, the non-Jews in these towns. In Acts chapter 17, towards the end, we get a full sermon that Paul preached to these people. But let's look at kind of what was taking place. Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 6. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting verse that we named the whole uh, series after. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. People are believing and receiving Christianity even though they've not heard it before and accepting and believing in this Christianity is going to result in incredible persecution. Culture level, financial level, and maybe even health life level. Persecution. And yet people are accepting, they're believing. Why? What's the message that's so compelling that it's transforming people even in spite of incredible obstacles? Well, let's read it. Acts chapter 17. Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus. Okay, 
What's that word? What's happening? Paul, he leaves from where he was. He goes to Greece. And while he's in Athens, he's waiting on some of his boys to catch up with him. And then they're going to continue on the tour. And while he's in Athens, he's supposed to just be hanging out. He's just waiting for people to come. He can't do it. He starts walking around. And lo and behold, for Paul, he finds like the most wonderful place on the planet. It's called the Areopagus. And in the Areopagus, nerdy type people get together and just debate all day, every day on philosophical stuff. So Paul walks into a place where people are inviting you to talk about what you believe about God. Oh, it's just incredible, right? And he walks into this place and he says, all right, you want to know who God is? And he preaches this sermon. He says, men of Athens. I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, what is he talking about? As he was walking through the city of Athens, he would see all of the evidences of the different gods that people worshipped in that city. And in those days, that would have just been a ton of different gods. Just to, we've got to get back into the idea of what things were like before Christianity if we're going to see the transformation that took place. And there's a lot of information involved. This is maybe less of like a fun, funny sermon and more of like a luxury type sermon. I apologize for that. But we have to get into what was going on in Rome in order to understand the transformation that took place. So, as Paul's walking along, he sees in Rome, or in Athens, gods that represent lots of different levels. Any individual in those days would have had all the gods that you hear about. You hear about the Greek and Roman gods, Zeus and Athena and Hermes, and you know what I'm talking about. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just go rent Hercules, the Disney movie. (laughs) Catch you up in like 10 minutes. Everybody had those gods. Then there was also gods for your nation. Everybody that's part of the Roman Empire had even begun to worship either the emperor or this god Roma. They had this kind of god system set up to represent the Roman Empire. Then within your city, the place that you're from, they would even have gods that were for that city. In the city, they would be worshiping all the big gods. They'd be worshiping the Roman Empire gods, and then they'd be worshiping their city gods. Then within the city, whatever you did professionally, you would have a whole list of gods that you worshipped for your job. If you were a miner, if you were a candle maker, if you were a baker, whatever, you had your gods for your guild. And then even at your family level, you would have little household family gods. And each of those gods would be part of your world and you would sacrifice to them in order to appease them whenever you needed them to do whatever it is that one specific god did. And as Paul's walking through, he sees these people who are worshiping at all these different levels. He says, I perceive you are very religious. Then he says, I have also found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown god. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. He's saying what you can see in some of the poets from those ancient days. They would actually be sort of hunting around the idea that there was one great God over everything else. And if you think about it hard, it does make sense that there would be one place from which things begin. There would be one standard. There would be one most powerful, most high. Paul says, I'm going to tell you all about this most high, this unknown. 
He says in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. All right, he's already given them something new. They all worship gods that lived in temples. He's saying, no, 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 no. Above, beyond, bigger than. Yes, the Jews had temples, but they always understood that God didn't live in it. So much bigger. The heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. He doesn't worship a God that lives in temples made by man, nor is he served by humans' hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So the first point that he makes in this sermon is, everybody worships, and you should be worshiping what is most high. Part of how he does that is he makes God as big as he is. One of the pastors that I really like to listen to, a guy named Tim Keller, gives this illustration. It's kind of long, but I think it's worth it. He says, at a Christian camp in Colorado, a woman Bible teacher gave an illustration that changed my life. She said, if the distance between the earth and the sun, 92 million miles, was reduced to the thickness of a sheet of paper, then the distance between the earth and the next nearest star, if the earth and the sun is our first star, then the next nearest star would be a stack of paper 70 feet high. And the diameter of the galaxy would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. That's how big the galaxy is. And yet, the galaxy is nothing but a speck of dust virtually in the whole universe. And the Bible says Jesus Christ holds this universe together with the word of his power. His pinky, as it were. And then she asked the question. Is this the kind of person you ask into your life to be your assistant? Think about it for a second. This is where worlds collide. These people in ancient times were using all these little gods to help them in all kinds of little ways. They might give a little sacrifice here. They may give a little bit of money there. They may do a little bit of obedience here in order to have this God or that God or this God assist them in some way. And Paul is claiming a God who is above, bigger than, The one upon whom you can found everything. The one who gets to decide everything. Not your assistant. Let's just ask the question, is it possible that part of our transformation problem, part of why our Christianity seems so flush with, so unimpressive to, so ineffective to the world, is that our God is so small. He's not really, but we treat him like he is. We treat him like he's our assistant. No, Paul is talking about the true God that we need to believe into. It says in verse 26, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. This is where it really gets tense. This is where the rubber hits the road. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Look what he's doing. He's saying, many of these gods you formed with your own hands, you carved. And the people there would say, okay, yeah, those are just representations. Use your your imagination here, Paul. We're talking about something bigger. And he's like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. You think you get to decide who God is. 
You think you get to edit God. Well, I like this and I really like this, but I don't think that God would actually that. So let's just either pretend it doesn't exist or believe that it's not true about God. I believe that God would do this, but I don't believe God would do this. So I'm just going to edit. Whether you say you do that or you don't say you do that. We all do that when we go to Scripture. As you're reading through it, there's parts that you love, love and forgiveness and grace, and there's parts that you cringe at. Holiness. The idea that we must repent. Paul says, you don't get to make God. God made you. The scripture is clear. It's not literal, physical God's offspring. It's the idea that he created us. In Genesis, it talks about he formed us out of the dirt. We don't form him out of materials, no matter how nice the materials are. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but he now commands all people everywhere to repent. We'll talk about that word more. Because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, Jesus. And of this he has given assurance by raising him, Jesus, from the dead. Big conclusion, and he's out. Paul's done preaching. That was the content of the sermon that he thought would just absolutely radically change the Athenian culture and then from there continue to build out and change all the Roman government. And he was right. It actually did. Real quick, let's talk about some of the things that changed because of the Christian preaching, because of what the Christians were speaking, the way in which this Roman government, this Roman culture just totally flipped inside out and turned upside down. We've got to do it quick because the, the point kind of goes beyond just the historical interestingness of it. First, Paul, to the non-believers, not to the Jews, they have the same God, but to the non-believers, he's the Gentiles, he's preaching to them a totally new God. A God who's over all, supreme. The Jews had that same God and they taught about him, but they really only kept it to themselves. It was kind of an ethnic barrier. But the Christians were speaking about God to all of the Roman Empire and they were expecting those people to stay whatever they were and just become Christians. This provided in that government a new cohesion. No longer are you slave or free. This ethnic background or that ethnic background. This gender, that gender. You're now all one in Christ. Galatians 3 says it really beautifully. For as as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither now Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. You can see this in so many ways historically, but it's so interesting to notice. That when the Christians would preach, they would preach to different groups of people. You had philosophers in those days and they would write about the way things should be and they would tell about moral kind of expectations of the culture, but they would always be free men speaking to free men. In the church, and you can read this in the letters of the New Testament, you had the leaders of the church speaking to, preaching to everyone. Whatever you were out there, when you came in here, you're just his. So they would preach to the masters, and then they would preach to the slaves. They'd preach to the men, and then they'd preach to the women. They'd preach to the parents, and then they'd preach to the kids. Because radically, we were all his, and before him, 
We're all having to submit. And in that new cohesion, you get a whole new set of ethics. If people are people and God is God, then some of the things that everybody thought was cool aren't so cool anymore. Christianity was what impacted the culture so desperately, so um, at its core, that things we consider now to be good or bad are all based on this initial Christian ethic. When Christianity hit Rome, and this is a little bit saucy, so forgive me, sexually, most anything went. If you were a free man, a citizen, a Roman man, you were allowed, it was considered morally okay, for you to unite yourself physically with any woman you saw, as long as she wasn't another free person, and a virgin, or another man's wife. Other than that, anything goes. Totally fine. It wasn't until Christianity that we said, no, 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 no. Men and women both have value before God. And the sexual relationship was created by God to be for a man and a woman in the bounds of marriage relationship. That the woman has rights over what the man does with his body as the man has rights over what his wife does with her body. Before that, there was just all kinds of stuff going on. And the oppression that came from it, I'm sure you can imagine. When it came to children, before Christianity came along, it was considered morally neutral to take children you didn't want and just expose them. That's the way that you would say, putting them outside to die. You had an unwanted baby. Maybe you already had four kids and you knew if you had five that would dilute your inheritance that much more and you wanted your four to really be able to continue the family name. So number five, six, and seven, you just put out to die. Maybe you're really hoping for a boy and you got a girl. Okay. It was the Christians who said, not only don't do that, it was the Christians who went out and found those little babies left out to die and brought them into their homes and adopted them. Raised them up, not to be slaves and sold, but as their own children. None of this mentions the kind of sexual abuse that was considered okay for adult men to do to young boys. That Christianity came along and said, that's not okay. You can't do that. Socially, it was Christianity that came along and said, slaves and masters are made by the same God. They're all slaves together to this God. So slaves have to be treated well by their masters. Masters, you actually have to be treated well by your slaves, not in lip service, but in true obedience. That kind of love and equality was the the ethic that eventually broke down the slave trade worldwide. It was the Christians who came along to these gladiatorial spectacles where humans would be fighting against other humans. Just these these slaves would be gladiators. And there's cool movies about it. But you don't actually want to be one of those guys. And the bloodlust and the blood sport of it all. It was the Christians who came along and said, we can't do that. Not only did Christians have a vision for how things should be, they actually had power to bring about that transformation. And this all comes back to the real thing that you and I need to figure out. Again, it's interesting historically that Christianity brought about these changes that we all together consider to be good. It's Christianity historically that created the basis for any understanding of human rights. And there's all kinds of stuff we need to think about from that. But this morning, I want to ask you why those kinds of transformations took place back then and 
maybe happen to a lesser degree today in your life and for us collectively in our city's life. See, when God preached to us through Paul about these times of ignorance that he overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, he's talking about actual change. That's what that word repent means. It's not just some heavy religious word that means you're bad and now you know it. It actually means to change. The word repent means you're going one direction, you stop and you go the other direction. He commands this change because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who has been appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In that last phrase of verse 31, the very last part of his sermon that he preaches to these Gentiles, Paul alludes to the the only way that this transformation will actually happen. It's one thing to have God's view of how things should be. It's a totally different thing to actually have the power to bring about that change. Do you know where that power comes from? It comes from the gospel. This man who came and died and was raised for us. See, the gospel says that you and I are completely guilty of false worship. When we use the word worship, you can think a million different things. But I think biblically you can condense it down to where do you find your security and your satisfaction? Not just, okay, it's Tuesday at 5 o'clock and I really enjoyed my SpaghettiOs satisfaction. Your capital S satisfaction. What makes you okay? What makes you say, I am me because I fill in the blank. What is your identity based on? Where do you get your security and your satisfaction? Jesus talked about it as your foundation upon which you're going to build your house. Where does that come from? Because we can make fun of the Romans who had all these different gods at all these different levels. But you and I do the exact same thing. We just paint it with this sort of secular post-enlightenment. There's not really a God there, but there are concepts there. We still worship our beauty. We still worship our effectiveness. We still worship our wisdom. We still worship our money. We still look to those things to be our security and our satisfaction. And into that wild paganism, Christianity steps in and says, you failed, but I love you anyway. That's what Jesus came and preached. Jesus came and he preached. He preached about a religion without temples or images or altars or sacrifices or priesthoods or shrines because he finished all that. He fulfilled it. He did it. And being perfect, he died the death that you and I deserve for our idolatry to make a way so that if we just turn not live a perfect life. We just turn and we look to him and trust. We are transformed. Thomas Watts, one of those Puritan guys, talked about it, doctrine of repentance. He says, a Christian life, two wings of a bird. Ooh, sorry, <laughs> one of those big birds. Faith <laughs> and repentance. In my head, it didn't look so stupid. But imagine you're flying. 
Your two wings in the Christian life are that of faith and repentance. Constantly turning back away from the things. Constantly turning back away from making God smaller. Editing Him down into what can be your assistant. Repenting. And faith. Constantly seeing what is true about God. True about you. True about what He has called you to. As we do those things, we find the power for transformation. This is a little wordy, but there's a book called Destroyer of the Gods by a guy named Larry Hurtado. He's just a scholar. I don't know that he's even a Christian. But he just looked at the historical impact that Christianity made. And he said, believers were to take on the demands of Christian behavior immediately upon their initiation as Christians. With the promise given that they could be enabled for this behavior, behavioral effort, by divine gift. Every religion everywhere says you got to be better, you got to be different, you got to change. But the the power for that change is always just your own grit. It's Christianity that stepped into that vacuum and said only God can do this through you. And only the God that's the God. Not all the gods that you create for yourself that serve you. But the God. Is that the God we worship? If we have a transformation problem on the individual or corporate level, this is where we need to go back and look. And it's my prayer. We're done right here. It's my prayer that by God's grace, we will have faith to see him as he is. Not as we want him to be, but as he is. We'll have the ability to see ourselves as we are and want to change. And as we follow those two things, we'll see as God transforms us into something that will be salt and light to our community. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would take our eyes off of ourselves long enough to see you for who you really are. And as we see you for who you are, that we would, we would repent, Father. We would bow to you. And as we do that, Lord, I just pray that you would transform your people. That we would no longer be who we were, but we would be something new. And all of our our activity, all of our habits and patterns of disobedience are going to change slowly, not overnight. But we pray that you would change us. And just like ancient Christians who were able to look out in the culture and see ways in which people were hurting themselves and hurting others and say, no more. I pray that we would be transformative in our culture. Lord, don't let us alone to ourselves, but make us something that is salt and light in this community for your glory and their good. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen. Let's